Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 28th episode of the Not A Cast entitled, Catelyn Has Done Nothing Wrong Ever Except That One Time, But Not Here, You Gutless Cowards. Show yourselves, or I'll smoke you out of your devil holes. Jeff, honey, well, we yes, talked about yes. this. This is not what the episode is called. I'm pretty sure we've already had like half a dozen episodes called that already. Ah, that's true. We can't have one more? Read the sensible and accurate title I came up with. <sighs> Fine. Okay, sorry. I don't know. Those cat haters are just getting me, dude. I mean, I just can't help it but like kind of go off on them. I understand. All right. Well, the real title of the episode of episode 28 of the Nauticast is entitled... The Tipping Point, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Catelyn 5, in which Lady Catelyn and her faithful retainer Sir Roderick have a fateful chance encounter at the crossroads. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark M., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman, Zach, and Joe L. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all podcasts, we'll be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So, as a quick reminder for those of you who are listening and who are subscribing to our Patreon, we will be releasing our next Patreon-only episode all about Robert Baratheon on the 30th of August. So, that is going to be Thursday, the 30th of August, 2018, and that will be available for all of our $5 and above patrons. So if you're interested in checking out our patron, if you're not a current subscriber, the address for that you can find is patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And again, that Robert episode is coming out on August 30th. So stay tuned and check it out. The man, the king, the legend, the utter failure, everything about Robert Baratheon. We're going to take a deep dive into the character. So uh, I'm so excited good, about it and hope you are too. Oh man, like I was working on the document today and I'm just like, I'm getting giddy over talking about Robert's rebellion and all about Robert Baratheon's role in his own rebellion. It's going to be so good. Absolutely, sir. So again, that's coming soon. And one of our other pa- benefits for our Patreon is that those who contribute $10 or more a month have the ability to ask us questions. So Lord Commander Wolfman Zach asked for this week, I know you're answering fewer questions. Maybe a mailbag episode is in order. Perhaps. But there's something on my mind recently that I've thought of before, and as you guys are much better versed in the Song of Ice and Fire universe, I thought I'd solicit your thoughts here. To my mind, Rolor is the only deity in which we've seen objective proof of their existence. Barracks Resurrections, the Visions in the Flames, etc. Not to say that the others don't exist, but we have yet to see objective quote-unquote miracles from the other gods and religions. One could argue for the many-faced god, as, of course, several people die throughout the series— the seven appear to be mostly superstition, which is perhaps a meta-commentary from George R. R. Martin, question mark. One could also make the argument about the old gods via the weirwood trees, but that seems somewhat dubious as well. My questions are thus. What A Song of Ice and Fire religions do you think are real, and which are just bunk? Do you think R'hllor and his followers have a larger role to play as we hurtle towards the end game, or are his machinations simply a function of plot narrative necessity? Any other thoughts you have on this, I'd love to hear. Thanks for indulging me and taking the time. Keep up the good work, my friends. Yes, and thank you, Zach, for the great question, and thank you for your friendship, too. Terrific questions about which religions are real. I can say that George has said that he is agnostic, both in terms of what religions and gods are real. He has said that the gods will not make any appearances in his books, and he's left it ambiguous whether the gods and the religions of his own story are real. My 
feeling is that, and I think we talked about this in our brand two episode, is that I don't think that the gods are necessarily real or that there is such a thing as gods in the Song of Ice and Fire universe. I do think that there is a magical force that is in existence there. I think that a lot of the magical power that we see in something like the old gods stems from the children of the forest, that the singers and the children of the forest, that they go into the trees after they die and they become part of the Werewood Network. I think that is definitely something that is occurring and that there is some magic involved in seeing the past and in potentially seeing the warring the wolves and through skin-changing animals. As to whether R'hllor is real, I think that's the one that's probably the closest to being objectively real or not. I, I don't know. I, I'll kick it over to you, Emma. What do you think? Do you think R'hllor is real? Do you think that R'hllor and the one and the great other, are they two gods that are actually real in the story? Or, or what are your thoughts on it? It's difficult to say whether R'hllor exists in the way that Melisandre and the other Red Priests conceive of him slash it. I think there are some signs of a conscious entity being involved that it's not just fire magic. The fact that Beric Dondarrion comes back multiple times, even though Thoros admits he has no real pre-existing skill and didn't even intend for it to happen the first time, suggests that someone else besides Thoros made that decision. I believe Varus's backstory when he says about the voice answering from the flames when the, the man who castrated and put his genitals on the fire, who knows if that was R'hllor or not, but it's suggestive given that it's fire and it seems to be yeah. some sort of supernatural force. That could be like a glass candle kind of thing where he's just communicating with someone from afar, certainly. But that and Melisandre getting the answer of Jon Snow when she asked to see Azor High. I think there's something going on there. I don't think it is a sun god and a, a literal divine entity that helped create the universe in the way that uh, the Red Priest might think about it. If it's real and a singular entity, I think it's more akin to a demon of some kind or to a, something like the Hall curse or or even something yeah. uh, like the, the, the Children of the Forest and the Singers. Maybe it's connected to the Fourteen Flames. Maybe it's connected purely to a shy in the Shadowlands. Obviously, as you say, Martin has said we're not going to be seeing literal gods in the flesh in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think what we're seeing more of is kind of a blurring of the lines between magic, nature, and divinity. The children of the forest and the old gods and the weirwoods kind of seem to exist at a nexus of all those things. And uh, I think it's entirely possible that R'hllor exists in the same way. I can see that being the case. Kind of my, my own tinfoil as to why... Melisandre saw Jon Snow when she asked for Azor High. was yes. that Blood Raven was kind of fucking with her in her dreams <laughs> and, and the fires. Sure. You know? <laughs> because he, he does appear, him and Bran appear in Melisandre's flames in that same chapter. So I always thought that, that Blood Raven was just being like, okay, look, I'm just going to spell it out for you right now. You ask for Azor High. here's Jon Snow. And of course, Melisandre immediately interprets that to be just snow, that Stannis is lost in the snow in, the, in a blizzard and the way that Melisandre usually interprets things. But yeah, I, I I do agree that there is some sort of blending going on between deity, nature, and the rational world. I think it's really cool, though, too. Um, I, I do agree. I think some of the other ones that are mentioned, like the Seven, the Faith of the Seven is very obviously not real and is very obviously built on stories and is built around the ideals of Roman Catholicism and some of the principles of worship and the way that the organization is structured resemble the Roman Catholic Church. And that is the church that George R. R. Martin grew up. And the fact that it doesn't have any power maybe speaks a little bit to George's kind of 
strong feelings about his upbringing, his Catholic upbringing, and how he's talked about how he himself is agnostic, if not kind of a, a weak atheist, I think is kind of the way that uh, some, agno- some agnostics describe themselves. And that's I think that's how George describes himself, too. I think that's kind of the, the faith of the seven is, is basically George's version of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the medieval Catholic Church. And the fact that they don't have any power and don't have any magic behind them maybe speaks more personally to what George's experiences are growing up. Uh, the many-faced God, I always like when – I, when I read The Many-Faced God from A Feast for Crows, it reminded me so much of the book of Acts from the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is in sure. Athens – Mm-hmm. And he goes and he's touring the different temples and the statues and the idols and the and he sees an altar to the unknown God that seems very much based around what the many faced God is. I think maybe that's what George was going for, but I, I don't know exactly. I, I don't think the many faced the many faced God has to have some sort of power. Maybe the faceless men have some sort of powers, but it's it's I don't know. You're probably more you're more the bravest guy than I am. Do the do the faceless men ascribe their power to change faces to the many-faced god or just more to their own practices of faceless men magic yeah this is a difficult one the many-faced god i don't know kind of struck me always more as like a metaphor than as a singular distinct deity like that's yeah they have all the statues of all those gods especially the death gods in the house of black and white and their argument seems to be it's all one it's all one big story but the way they talk about him as his as the many-faced God's servants, but they're not there to judge. And yeah, I don't think they literally make the connection between the God itself and their other face-changing powers. Part of me wonders if their philosophy might be built on an elegant, self-aware metaphor of that kind, where they don't necessarily <laughs> believe there is one death God, but they're making the argument that politically, ideologically, this is all one story. So I, I definitely don't believe there is one unified death god in the the Song of Ice and yeah. Fire universe. I don't think we've seen much indication of that. Uh, I really liked what you were saying about uh, the Seven and uh, Catholicism. I think that's definitely true. The fact that Tyrion went across Andalos, where the Seven is from, the faith of the Seven is from, and nothing mystical happened. There was no sign of anything, <laughs> you know, magical or otherworldly going on. I think is pretty telling. But on the other hand, of course, you know, Martin still presents. The Faith of the Seven with some with some love, with some romance. When Catelyn is talking about how much she loved the sept of her youth at River Run and comparing it to the Godswood. You know, I think you can sense a certain longing for the days of, of incense and, and Latin uh, in George sure. R. R. Martin's writing of a scene like that. Sure, yeah. He's looking for that pre-Vatican II version of The Faith of the Seven. <laughs> yes, there is some nostalgia <laughs> for that, which is a, a real thing I've found among, I think, Catholics of that generation, even the more <coughs> liberal-minded ones who have uh, largely moved on ideologically from that period, there's something comforting, I think, about the ritual aspect of it that I think you can still see whenever Martin describes, like, the rainbow light bursting from a crystal onto people's faces happens a couple times in the series. There's, there's a longing you can see there, I think. There's there's a power in symbols that's... Yeah. It's, it's not magical, but it definitely has an impact on people. And I think that's one of the impetuses behind George's exploration of religion in the series. Because George, as being agnostic or atheistic could have written a world devoid of, of religion. He could have written a world kind of like Tolkien's world where middle earth is, there's no, I mean, there are gods and there are angels and there are demons and there are Balrogs and things like that, but he doesn't have an overarching theology behind these beings. These are just more like magical beings, but instead George likes to delve into the practices and beliefs of these 
of, of people and to understand like their appeal and their power to someone like Catelyn when Catelyn is describing the sept that she grew up in. Or when in the Feast for Crows, when we're introduced a character like Septa Maribald, you can see him as a practicing member of the Faith of the Seven. You can see the appeal of the Faith of the Seven in someone who is genuinely kind to strangers and is going around preaching to the poor and has an interesting backstory and has found personal redemption within the Faith of the Seven from his backstory. And the same thing, too, with the Elder Brother, too, who also has a bit of a backstory and um, is able to gain some personal redemption through the Faith of the Seven. So you can see the power in religion, even if there's no magic necessarily involved in it. But yes, I, I think R'hllor is the strongest case for there being a god or two gods in the case of R'hllor because it's R'hllor and the one whose name must not be spoken. But but yeah, I think that's probably my final take on it. Well said, sir. I would also just add as an addendum that from what we get in the world of Ice and Fire, the drowned god is real, but as a giant kraken monster. And that's, <laughs> and that's yes. the key on that. Yes, absolutely. Which is makes it all the more terrifying, in my opinion. <laughs> exactly. Gods are monsters, folks. Yes. Just, just, just whether you're a, a fire drinking people up or a tree drinking people up or a kraken drinking people up. They're all just delightful monsters. Yes. Yes. Delightful, in quotation marks, monsters. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so... Thank you, Lord Commander Zach. We appreciate the question. And again, if you subscribe at $10 a more month, you have the ability to ask us questions and we will be forced to answer them on this podcast. So thanks again to Zach for the question. And now we're moving on to a Game of Thrones Catelyn 5, which I am going to say up front is probably my favorite chapter in all of us and not all of a Song of Ice and Fire, but in all of a Game of Thrones. And here's its synopsis. Catelyn Stark is heading north from King's Landing, doing nothing wrong in the middle of a rainstorm. Roderick Cassell tells her to put her hood up or she'll catch a chill. But Catelyn doesn't care. She's living the Riverlands dream out here, letting the warm, soft southern rain fall over her. And she didn't care how awful she looked. This was home for her. And home was full of memories. Damp leaves, the river-run godswood with drooping branches holding water, and Lysa and Catelyn making mud pies and having Littlefinger eat them. The rain was youth. The rain was home. In contrast, the rain at Winterfell, where she had gone eventually, was not so nice. It was cold, and no one played in it. It could turn to ice. It could kill a crop. It could be death. But where Catelyn is having the time of her life, Sir Roger Cassell is absolutely miserable. He thinks about stopping soon to set up a fire, but Catelyn says there's an inn ahead, one that she knew from her girlhood. She'd spent many a night in that inn as her father, Lord Hoster, traveled to and fro. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know the drill. More on that later. But is the inn safe? Sir Roderick is skeptical, but before he can broach his skepticism further, riders, and they're approaching down the King's Road straight towards them. It's Lord Jason Malister with, with his son, Sir Patrick. Sir Roderick Cassell begs Catelyn to put her hood up, but she refuses. As Lord Malister passes, she looks him in boldly and recalls the last time that she had seen him. He was making ribble jests at her wedding night with Brenda Tully. hey oh! This time, though, Lord Jason doesn't recognize her. No one does. To all onlookers, they appear as mud-spattered travelers. This leads Catelyn to state again that they'd be anonymous at the end of the crossroads. So they arrive at the inn near dark and meet Masha Heddle. And who is Masha Heddle? She's the owner of the inn and is renowned for chewing a sour leaf, which turns her mouth into a ghastly, horrendous red. Catelyn asks for two rooms. Masha says, sure, so long as they're okay with rooms that are by the bell tower, which will ring when supper is ready. And don't be late for supper. Catelyn accepts and she changes into warm clothes in her room. As she's in her room, she looks outside her dirty milk-colored window, and she catches an unclear glimpse of the crossroads where the river and the King's Road meet. 
Metaphor alert. Anyways, the road <laughs> crossing gives her pause. She thinks about where she might go from here. It was an easy ride to River Run. She wanted to go that route. Besides, if war was coming, River Run would be right in the crosshairs of any army crossing east or west. Meanwhile, the eastern road was wilder and more dangerous. But that route took her through the Mountains of the Moon, but also took her to Lysa, too. If she went that route, she might be able to question Lysa and find some answers to help bring the Lannisters to ruin. But that mountain road was very dangerous. Wild animals and wild men lived in the mountains. So Catelyn decides the only way is to Winterfell. She would get north of the Neck and declare herself to one of Ned's bannermen. From there, preparations for war would be made. And the rain kept falling and obscuring Catelyn's view. But in her memory, she knew the land. There was a village not far. Beyond that, the King's Road ran along the Green Fork of the Triton through the valleys and forests to towns, holdfasts, and castles of the River Lords. Cat had known them all from her youth. The quarrelsome Blackwoods and Brackens. Lady went to Tarrenhall. Walter Frey. All better men to her father, and all needed if it came to war. But if he called his banners, would her father's banner lords come riding? Maybe. But maybe not. You see, some of Hoster Tully's bannermen had remained loyal to Aerys II Targaryen during Robert's Rebellion, and Hoster had to fight them as rebels in order to secure their allegiance. Meanwhile, Walter Frey had come late to the Triton, and no one was quite sure who he planned to back, whether it was going to be Aerys or Robert. But, you know, Walter had claimed afterwards that he was, of course, coming to aid Robert, of course, after Robert had won the battle, and there ever after, Hoster Tully had called him the late Lord Frey. It must not come to war, Catelyn thought fervently. They must not let it. But as she thinks that, the bell starts tolling, signaling dinner, and it's a deafening tone. But as soon as the bell stopped tolling, Roderick arrived at a room and stated that they should, they should grab a bite to eat. Catelyn agrees, but first they must take on new identities. They must not become lady and sir. They must become father and daughter to attract less notice. As you say, my lady, Roderick says, before realizing what he said. They laugh for a moment and head down to dinner that would decide so... So much. Downstairs, the benches are crowded with people, and Roderick and Catelyn find a table on the far side of the room. As Catelyn sits, she studies the room. Small folk, farmers, merchants, but there are some swordsmen in the room, too. The swordsmen have Frey and Bracken surcoats on, but she judges that none of them would know who she is given their youth. Across from them, a singer offers a blessing which Catelyn reciprocates and Roderick ignores. The singer asks Catelyn and Roderick where they're going. Catelyn carefully replies that they left King's Landing two weeks prior. The singer says that's where he's going, hoping to win silver and renown at the Cannes tourney. And the singer should have won both of the last tourney, but he'd lost it all gambling on Jamie Lannister to win the tourney. Anyways, food arrives and the singer introduces himself as Merlion. He thinks they might know him, but they don't. Singers rarely made it north to Winterfell, but Catelyn is bemused by Merlion's demeanor. It reminds her of the singers from her youth. Roderick is not so enamored with Merlion. When Merlion asks who was the best singer they ever knew, Roderick replies, Alia Bravos. When Merlion protests that he's better than the old stick and he'll show them for a silver, Roderick states that he has a copper too, but he'd better have a better use for the coins by throwing them down a well. You see, Roderick thought singing and music was nice for gals, but hashtag real men don't have any use for singers. They are swordsmen. <laughs> Anyways, Catelyn asks if Merlion ever played in River Run. Merlion lies and talks about how he and Edmure are best friends and that he has his own room at River Run. Cat smiles to herself, knowing that, that Edmure hates singers, especially after one better a girl Edmure was interested in. Catelyn asks if the singers ever gone to Winterfell. Nah, the Starks don't know music other than the Howling of Wolves. And just then, the door opens on the far side of the room. Cue the start of the Game of Thrones plot. Tyrion Lannister... Yorin and two Lannister men come through asking for a room, but there's no room available. Catelyn is aghast. 
How is it that Tyrion is here of all places? Tyrion flashes a coin, saying he'll buy a room from someone. A free rider takes Tyrion up on the offer, and Tyrion flips in the coin. He asks for food from Masha Heddle, and Catelyn hopes he chokes on the food. Oh boy, this is not going to go well. Tyrion orders food for himself and his men anyways, despite Catelyn's murderous thought. So far, Tyrion hasn't looked toward the end of the hall Catelyn and Roderick are in. But then Merillion jumps up to his feet and yells to Tyrion that he'll sing for him about his father's victory at King's Landing. Nothing would be more likely to ruin my supper, Tyrion replies. The dwarf looks at the singer for a moment and then looks away until he spots Catelyn Stark. Lady Stark, what an unexpected pleasure. I was sorry to miss you at Winterfell. <sighs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Everyone is aghast at not recognizing Catelyn, and Cat feels eyes bearing down on her. What should she do? Should she risk doing that? Yeah, she's going to risk it. Catelyn points to a man wearing the sigil of House Went. You in the corner. Is that the Black Bat of Harrenhal? It is. And is he a true and loyal man to Hoster Tully? Yes, he is. And how about you with the Red Stallion? The Brackens were always welcome River Run. Are you loyal to Lord Hoster? Yep, they are definitely loyal too. And how about you two dudes with the Twin Towers of House Frey? How's Big Daddy Water? Good? <laughs> and he's getting married again. Tyrion laughs and Catelyn knows she has him now. Mm -hmm. This man came as a guest into my house and there conspired to murder my son, a boy of seven. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. A dozen swords are drawn and Catelyn Stark knee Tully is satisfied by the sound and the look on Tyrion Lannister's face. And that is the Game of Thrones Catelyn 5 in the words of Will Smith and Bad Boys, which is a fantastic movie. Don't at me. Shit just got real, brother. A Game of Thrones is directed by Michael Bay. I love it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this is this is another one of those chapters in the first book that has to go just right. It's a very foundational chapter for the book. You know, this is the first act break. We've been teasing this chapter as the moment where the plot begins, and that's really the case. All the intrigue and scheming and arranging of Savas pieces on those early Ned and Catelyn chapters, this is where it really starts to pay off. This is From this you get, of course, Tyrion and Catelyn's trip to the Vale. You get Ned's brawl on the streets with Jaime. You get the Lannister invasion of the Riverlands, which are really the, the opening moves of the War of Five Kings. None of that would be as impactful if it didn't if it wasn't given a proper foundation. And so it really matters that this chapter is just structurally so perfect, as you outlined in your synopsis, sir. Oh my goodness, it's amazing in terms of how this, this chapter is structured. And I, and I think we're both going to talk about this, but it's fantastic that this chapter takes place. The location of it is just great. It takes place at the end of the crossroads, which of course is in the middle of a huge rainstorm. And, you know... Sometimes I like to like find new passages and things that strike me that haven't struck me until until I'm reading it in this in this read. Uh, but this is the one that struck me this time. It is quote: "She sat by the window, watching rain run down the pane." Great sentence, by the way. Mm -hmm. The glass was milky and full of bubbles, and a wet dusk was falling outside. Catelyn could just make out the muddy crossing where the two great roads met. What it seems like to me is that George is doing a great job of metaphoring it up here because <laughs> Catelyn is staring out at a pivotal plot crossroads and her view is limited thanks to that motherfucker Lord Littlefinger mm -hmm. and though Catelyn is going to think that her memories and past experiences will guide her on maybe not so much now of course like Rob later on he has like essentially the allegiance of all of the Riverlands there's no defections if I 
Remember correctly? I believe, yeah. Yeah, I believe you're right about that, sir. Yeah. But at the same time, this is not going to be like Robert's Rebellion. And as we're going to find in the, the next Catelyn chapter, the next several Catelyn chapters, we're going to find out why that is. And the main reason why is because the Veil of the Aaron is going to sit out the war. Yes, indeed. And I love what you were saying right there about the this being a, a great metaphor for what this means for the plot. This chapter, it's at a literal crossroads, and it's also a crossroads in terms of the narrative. And as you were saying early on in your synopsis, that works so well because it's a, it's a crossroads in time as well as space for our POV, for Catelyn. This is home, like you said. There's just that, that great opening passage, uh, quote, her hair hung wet and heavy, a loose strand stuck to her forehead, and she could imagine how ragged and wild she must look. But for once she did not care. This is her inner aria coming out, basically. Yes. The southern rain was soft and warm. Catelyn liked the feel of it on her face, gentle as a mother's kisses. It took her back to the childhood to long gray days at River Run. And then, like you said, there's all that stuff about the godswood, uh, playing with Edmure and Lysa and Littlefinger, the mud pies. And then... Uh, in the north, the rain fell cold and hard, and sometimes at night it turned to ice. It was as likely to kill a crop as nurture it, and it sent grown men running for the nearest shelter. That was no rain for little girls to play in. That's just such great resonant character work, that she's associating the southern rain with her mother, who of course uh, died while Catelyn was young. So it's yes. this sense of she's coming back to this home she's been away from for so long. She's remembering what she loved about it, but also what she lost there. This youth and innocence she associates with River Run and has since the very beginning, talking about the Godswood as a place from her, the River Run Godswood as a place from her youth, as opposed to the, the grim Winterfell Godswood that represented adulthood. And that, you know, when Catelyn thinks about the Roberts Rebellion era, it's about like the, the moment she grew up, right? Like she lost Brandon Stark, yeah. the hothead uh, Lothario, and accepted Ned into her heart as someone who was not as exciting as Brandon, but had a good sweet heart that she could live with, and the disappointment she suffered regarding Jon Snow and how she's had to live with that. Like she associates that war and then her coming north with adulthood, with maturity, and it's very bittersweet because she's coming back to the place when she had no such burdens and no such cares and wasn't thinking about a war. Not yet. Yeah. As easy as it is to think of Catelyn, and she thinks of herself this way, as, as a completely sour woman stricken by the war and grief, you need these little moments when she remembers the good times to, to make you care when the bad times come. No, you're absolutely right. And the, the great thing about this chapter is that Catelyn knows that things are amiss. Everyone that's going south to King's Landing, they're going to have fun, right? It's going to basically going to the NFL game on like... <laughs> sure. You know, it's it. You know, to take to use a terrible metaphor, and I apologize if this is going to offend anyone. It's like the people who went to the NFL games on September 9th, two thousand one, and just a few days later, it's nine eleven. Right? Like this. I mean, it is for for Westeros. All these people that are going south right now are all going to be caught up in the war in one way or the other. Oh, if sure. they stay in King's Landing, they're going to come to siege from Stannis later in the Clash of Kings. If they come back to the Riverlands, Tywin Lannister is going to burn his way across the Riverlands. And there's going to be multiple battles fought there between Jaime and Robb Stark, between Tywin and Roose Bolton, and between Gregor Clegane and the Mountain's Men versus the Brotherhood Without Banners. Like, this entire region is going to just be decimated by the coming war. And these people have no idea. The only one that does know is Catelyn and Roderick to some extent as well. It's, it's troubling. I've, I don't know if you've ever been in the place where you have the sense that something bad is coming, but no one around you has that same sense because you have some foreknowledge and some inkling of, of, of the bad things that are coming because you, you know you know too much, essentially. And it just kind of sours you as a person watching all these happy people going to and fro, not realizing that they're all going to be caught up in a war sooner or later. 
I don't know what's more offensive, the 9-11 comparison or the fact that you remember which day before 9-11 was the Sunday uh, for football. <laughs> Both of oh, those gosh, things yeah. just wound me to the core of my soul. But anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you make great points. That is the feeling Catlin is experiencing right now is this kind of this dread. Things are on the verge of falling apart. It's very much the sentiment she will express when she gets to Renly's camp in the Clash of Kings and talks about the Knights of Summer. And you can yeah. definitely see Martin laying the groundwork for that scene and that theme in the hands tourney when we get to that in Sansa 2 and Edward 7. Yes, But in this absolutely. in this chapter, she's confronting nostalgia and how she's kind of had to age out of it. She's talking about the, the rain and they're splashing like tears on her face, which gets at the theme of icy, bloody, endless tears that pops up in Catelyn's story and also Lysa's and Sansa's and Lyanna's. Mm -hmm. This is a common theme running through a lot of uh, women, especially in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yes. And for Catelyn, in this case, it represents the bittersweetness, like I said, of age and maturity. That same nostalgia comes up with the inn itself, like you said. When, when Catelyn talks to Roderick about, you know, she remembers the inn because, uh, she quote, she had slept many a night there in her youth, traveling with her father. Lord Hoster Tully had been a restless man in his prime, always riding somewhere. She still remembered the innkeep, a fat woman named Masha Heddle, who chewed sourly night and day, and seemed to have an endless supply of smiles and sweet cakes for the children. The sweet cakes had been soaked in honey, rich and heavy on the tongue, but how Catelyn had dreaded those smiles. The sourleaf had stained Masha's teeth a dark red and made her smile a bloody horror. And I love that. Uh, it's probably revealing how much I love this, the idea of these children being terrified by a bloody smile. Uh, but yeah. it's it's a great contrast between like the sweet cakes and the honey and the smile, like you know, it's youth and innocence again. But then this horrible bloody smile—that's what's waiting for Catelyn. That's adulthood for her. That's the war. That's the loss. That's the grief. And it's going to ha happen to Masha Heddle, of course, as well. Uh, by the oh, end of gosh, this book, yeah. she will be killed for her. I was going to say her role here, but of course, she doesn't really have a role here. She's just held responsible because this is her place and because she's. Uh, low born and so Tywin can get away with it about kind of yeah, unleashing his rage that way but it's that yeah, it's just Tywin being an asshole it's just Tywin being an asshole but it's that same theme of Catelyn being kind of wistful about the past and then having to confront how things have changed and I think it's also found in someone like Marillion too seemingly you know he's like 17 or 18 years old he's just a singer he's got nothing but stories and, and songs and then he gets snatched right up into into this this conflict because he then goes with Catelyn and Tyrion on over to the Eyrie. He's one of the few survivors that actually makes it all the way over to the Eyrie. And what is Merillion's final fate in the books? It's actually kind of a little little bit ambiguous, but yeah, he, yeah. his tongue is cut out, right? I'm pretty sure at some point. They kind um, of allude to him being dead, but also dying. having cut a deal. My guess is that Moore just shoved him into the into the blue, so to speak. But uh, it's not yeah. its not really confirmed what happened. But that, I mean, that youth and innocence, and really is not a good guy, as we're going to find out with his interactions with Sansa later in, oh, Lord, in, no. in Storm of Swords. But his role in this chapter is to symbolize that innocence and that nice youth that Catelyn had at River Run with all the singers. But then his ultimate fate, though, is, is emblematic of what's going to happen to Westeros writ large. Very good point, sir. I think it's also interesting... In Catelyn's backstory here that she's noting she was traveling with Hoster as he went all over the place. Yes, Catelyn is traveling around with Hoster in his youth. And I think the line is something about like that Hoster was restless throughout his entire, yes. the entire time when Catelyn was young. And it's actually kind of fascinating why Catelyn is traveling with Hoster in all these journeys, because 
I think, and I think this is a point that our friend of the show and uh, our friend in real life, Stefan Sasse, makes, is that he has this great theory called Southern Ambitions, which is one of, it's actually my favorite theory. I don't know if, I don't know what, what your favorite theory is, but that's definitely my favorite theory. It's definitely up there for sure. Yeah, definitely. Southern Ambitions theory is the theory that the houses Tully, Aaron, Stark, and Baratheon, and the Lannisters to a lesser extent, were plotting to unseat Aerys the Second Targaryen before Robert's Rebellion began. And it's important that Catelyn is traveling with Hoster because it seems likely to me that Hoster was working to cement the nascent alliance via marriage. He succeeds in betrothing Catelyn to Brandon Stark, but when Brandon dies, the alliance is kind of up in the air whether Hoster will continue to participate with the Starks and the Aarons. And the only way that the alliance is maintained is because Lysa is then betrothed to John Aaron and is married off to John Aaron. I think. If I remember correctly, Eddard Stark wed Catelyn and John Aaron wed Lysa on the same day in River Run. Am I wrong in thinking that, or is that? I'm 99% sure you're correct about that. Yeah, I'd have to go back and reread some of the Storm chapters where she talks about that. But it's it's also possible too that Catelyn is riding around with Hoster for more mundane tasks like securing the River Lords as part of his regular duties as the Lord Paramount. But kind of even if that's the case, my suspicion remains that Hoster was securing the Riverlands ahead of what he planned for his rebellion against Ares and in securing that kind of fourfold alliance of four kingdoms of the seven kingdoms jumping in to, to fight against the Targaryens. It seems very likely to me that that's the case. And this is our first hint that there was something more at work with what Hoster Tully was doing before the war even kicked off. I agree. I think it's worth noting that the Tullys are the weakest of those paramount houses in terms of their control over their territory, generally speaking, yes. compared to the Starks, Aarons, or Baratheons. That's true for a variety of reasons of both history and geography that we could get into at length uh, on a later date. Maybe that, yes. would, maybe that would be a fun Patreon episode. Absolutely. That is to say that Hoster Tully would have to work harder than Ricard Stark or John Aaron or Stephen Baratheon would in order to get this alliance to be a reality, and he seems to have been kind of a canny politician in general, so I'm sure he'd be devoting a lot of time to making that happen. You know, there's also, obviously, there are Targaryen loyalists all over the Seven Kingdoms. The Roberts Rebellion Coalition had to take Goldtown against Targaryen loyalists at the start of the war. There were Targaryen loyalists in the Stormlands that Robert went up against. But the Riverlands in particular has a long history of both Targaryen and Blackfire loyalists. So Hoster was definitely running up against a wall there, I think, in terms of getting people to back the Southrun Ambitions Coalition. So while, of course, it could be for mundane reasons... I would bet that Martin maybe had that in mind when he wrote that about specifically about Hoster always being on the road and being restless about, ah, he's up to something. For sure. And, I, and I, I've read some recent fan thought that Southern Ambitions was kind of worked back in, was kind of retconned by George into the story. But when you read this chapter, you see that George is building the foundation of it. We also know that it's a bit odd, even early on at this point, how all of these Lords Paramount were betrothing their sons and daughters to each other from across kingdoms. Yeah. When we look at how this actually works, for the most part, I mean, look at the Tyrells, for instance, the Tyrells intermarried with the Red Wines, the Fossaways, and the Hightowers. Yes. So you see the Tyrells are building themselves up within their own kingdom. They're not necessarily building outside of the kingdom until we get into a Storm of Swords, or rather a Clash of Kings into a Storm of Swords, where the Tyrells intermarry with the Lannisters, or the Baratheons, depending on your perspective, although we know it's Joffrey is, is a Lannister through and through. So that seems to be the norm. So it, it seems suspicious here that these Lords Paramount were working together in a way that seems a bit out of the norm. And it seems, as as Barbara Dustin will talk about later on in A Dance with Dragons, that there is 
something afoot before Robert's Rebellion actually kicked off. I completely agree. But back to the Catelyn chapter at large, this is the, the chapter is terrific too because Catelyn is traveling through her her place of birth, through what she was used to and what she grew up in. But she has to hide essentially to get through the Riverlands, even though most of the people there don't know her, and even those that do know her, like Jason Malister, they don't recognize her. So she has to hide in plain sight. Yeah, that is one of the great things about this chapter. In my memory, I'd kind of reduced. Catalan 5 to what happens at the end. Obviously, that's the big selling point. That's what everyone remembers about it. That's the impact. But what makes that work so well, what makes the chapter overall so great, is how Martin builds up to that moment. You have that climactic moment where Tyrion recognizes Catalan and outs her as Lady Stark and Lady Tully in front of everybody. But throughout the chapter, you have this theme of, of identity and hiding in plain sight and people not recognizing Catalan until Tyrion does. And that's, that's <laughs> what makes the chapter so well-structured. From the very beginning, the opening words of the chapter. My lady, you ought cover your head, Sir Roderick told her. Now he's referring to the rain <laughs> and the cold, but even that right. is a sly allusion to Catelyn covering her face, covering up her identity, uh, as, right. as she will attempt to do until Tyrion sees her later in the chapter. And then, as you said in your synopsis, there is the meeting with the Malisters, who don't even think it could possibly be her, so they don't they don't stop to notice that how much she looks like Catelyn Stark. It never occurred to them that that would be Catelyn Stark on the side of the road. <laughs> Which is a kind of an interesting class observation, as with Jason kind of nodding respectfully, but his son Patrick doesn't even bother. And uh, you get that with with Masha Heddle too, uh, that she doesn't, she's not obsequious to Catelyn anymore because she doesn't know she has to be. There's no, right. there's no political benefit from it. Uh, so she just treats Catelyn like she would treat any other traveler, which is, you know, not overtly rude, but just kind of very close-mouthed and to the point in terms of what she's offering. And then Marillion who also doesn't know what he's dealing with, which is why he is, feels free to lie completely about Edmure and River Run, because he doesn't realize he's talking to Edmure's sister, which is a, <laughs> a nice a nice little gambit. And then it all, of course, uh, comes to head with Tyrion. And then when Tyrion notices her, that's when Catelyn asserts her identity. There's this big flip moment where she spent the entire chapter pr- pretending not to be Catelyn Tully, and then she not only reveals herself as such, but tries to take control of the scene with her identity, using it politically, using it as a tool and leverage over the other people in the room. So that's, I think, part of what makes that moment so powerful is it's turning the tables and everything that came before it in the chapter. I think it's it's great. It's a great point you make about how feudalism is working here in this chapter in that these people who did not recognize her until the moment before all draw their swords at the end of the chapter based on their loyalty to Lord Hostertully. It's weird for us in the modern world, right? If, if we had someone that revealed themselves as someone important and then demanded that we do something, we'd be like, no, unless we really wanted to do that, that thing. But here we have, they have to obey Catelyn Stark's words because essentially she is speaking with the voice of her father, but also speaking on behalf of King Robert because she's arrest Tyrion in the name of King Robert, which is interesting um, that Catelyn appeals to royal authority for these men to arrest Tyrion Lannister. So she appeals both to their, their first line leader, if you want to call it that, who is Hoster Tully, but then she also appeals to the ultimate decider, the ultimate justice, the ultimate person who would bring justice to this land, to the matter, which is King Robert himself. So it's very much a tiered, feudalistic structure that Catelyn is utilizing to get these men to draw their swords, to take Tyrion Lannister into captivity, for her to go to Winterfell? Is that where she's going? She going to Winterfell? I don't know. I, I forget. That is a delightful moment we'll get into in Tyrion 4 when she pretends to be going to Winterfell and instead takes them to the Vale and fools even him. And he gets all angry about that. 
Uh, that's yeah. that's very delightful. So we'll get into that. But it is. Yes, I absolutely love this part of the speech when Catelyn is going around the room to the Wents, to the Brackens, to the Freys. Because, yeah, she's laying out how the system works, how this how this society functions, and what authority she has in this space, and, and immediately putting into action. And it's interesting that, yes, she is laying out a power dynamic that she has over these people, but she's not putting it in these blunt stance terms of, here's the rules, you work for me. <laughs> she's laying it out the way I think she really thinks about it. Like, you are a true and honest friend. You are oldest and most loyal bannerman. You know, these are relationships... Of subservience, but also of, of honor and respect, and that if everyone is supposed to protect each other and work together, and that this is what makes us prosper. You can sense how strongly Catelyn believes in that system here, because she's putting everything on the line for it, and she thinks it's going to save her to a certain extent. And what I love best about it is when she's uh, talking to the phrase, because of course this is the first time we get into the phrase, <laughs> and one of their, their, the captain of their men points out that Lord Frey is getting married again soon, and that uh, he has asked Hoster to come, and Tyrion laughs. And I love this moment when, quote, that was when Catelyn knew he was hers. That's just mwah, because that's when all of the, <laughs> everything comes together. The world building, the character arcs, the, the drama of the scene. Catelyn knows she is one because Tyrion has mocked the phrase, mocked this, the Riverland, Riverlanders in the room. Catelyn has reminded everyone of their common identity, and now here's this outsider making fun of it. Mocking Lord Frey. Yeah. Now, everyone is laughing in their heads when that Frey captain says, Lord Frey is taking a new wife. He's invited your lord to come. Everyone is making the same joke Tyrion is making, including Catelyn, in their heads. Because everyone knows <laughs> this about Walder Frey. But Tyrion is the one who lets it out. So he breaks that, he breaks the rules, so to speak, of, of decorum and courtesy. And Catelyn is immediately able to take advantage of that. Again, courtesy is a lady's armor. In this case, it's almost a, a weapon. That, that Tyrion violates and Catelyn's able to think, yes, yes, that, that's going to cause anger and resentment and I can immediately capitalize on that. Yeah, you know, I love how Peter Dinklage does it in Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things mm -hmm. from Game of Thrones Season 1, where after his the, the Frey guy says, Lord Walder is taking another wife and Tyrion goes, oh, like, you know, kind of, <laughs> uh, like, it's, it's he does it in, in a great Peter Dinklage type of way. But, you, you know, it's, it's cool that in one sense, Feelism works to secure loyalty, and it, it depends on these personal relationships between the Brackens to the Tullys, between the Wents to the Tullys, between the Freys to the Tullys. But at the same time, George is going to significantly undercut that in the next Tyrion chapter when all of these men accompany Catelyn and Tyrion to the Eyrie, and they all get ambushed up in the Mountains of the Moon, and they a lot of them lose their lives. So it does seem... That George is making a point, another point about feudalism here, as he's doing throughout A Game of Thrones and throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, that yes, there are good things about it. It's good to have a good relationship. It's good that people can utilize a personal friendship to their overlord and know who Hoster Tully is and know who Catelyn Stark is and know who people like King Robert are. But at the same time, it does lead to their downfall and ultimately lead to the doom of a lot of these men that are going to take the journey, the dangerous journey up up the Vale Road to try to get Tyrion up to Lysatelli up in the Eyrie. Yeah, you make a, a great point about feudalism there. It's not, uh, it doesn't make sense to us, obviously, and it doesn't make sense to us for good reason, but that's not to say it didn't make sense to a lot of the people inside it, and not for malignant motivations either. Uh, this, you know, Catelyn, as we've said before, is maybe more than any other female character in the story, is the one who has understood and accepted and can flourish within her role as society has laid it out. And that makes her a valuable POV in terms of 
letting us know how Westerosi society does function and looks from the inside, so to speak. On the other hand, as you say, this, you know, textbook example of the feudal pyramid working as it's quote-unquote intended to do runs up against the harsh realities of the mountains of the moon because it's not, not just, as you say, that they're ambushed, but that they're specifically ambushed by people outside the feudal structure, the mountain clans yep. who, do, who are not part of this world and have very different rules from this world and politically, arguably, are m much more admirable in this world because, as Tyrion will note later on, they not only are democratic, relatively speaking, but they allow women to take part more than Catelyn is allowed to, at least by the official rules, take part in this world. Correct. So... That's, I think, yeah, when the politics get really interesting. But it is important to have this moment because I think if Martin was as, I think if Martin was shallow in his deconstruction, he would have this just fall apart in Catelyn's face, and like no one would mm -hmm. would come to her call, and that would be the point. Like, haha, you think your rules can protect you, which is, I think, a point that Martin makes sometimes, but sometimes gets over inflated as the overall point of the story which i don't think it is and i think it's important to have martin make this point and say yes feudalism is a horrible exploitative system that we should be glad to be rid of but its rules and machinations weren't all just cover-ups for hobbesian violence like they did right they did function in some ways for the people within them for the people at the top anyway yes absolutely it is deconstruction it is it is deconstructing feudalism but it is also showing how Feudalism is functional in, in a lot of senses. And I think that kind of takes us into some of our likes and dislikes because that feudal structure does work between Catelyn and Roderick for sure. We do get this extremely cute moment between Catelyn and Sir Roderick at the inn. That's something I really like about the chapter <laughs> where she uh, impresses upon him, hey, it's going to be conspicuous if we're traveling on the road as a noble lady and a knight, let's just pretend to be father and daughter. And he says, as you say, my lady. And Catelyn's <laughs> like, uh, so close, buddy. So close. <laughs> it's, it's, I like it because it's, it's very cute, of course, between the characters. It's just a nice emotional little moment uh, in what is otherwise a kind of uh, grim and foreboding chapter, as we said. Or, and even like a nostalgic chapter. But So it's nice to have a present yeah. day moment of sweetness. It dovetails it nicely with... Podrick's eternal struggle to find an honorific suiting Brienne, his constant bouncing back and forth between <laughs> Sir and Milady. Uh, yes. They are another, of course, pair of travelers in the Riverlands, so there's a connection there. And it does also dovetail with some of the class stuff I was talking about earlier with uh, the way Masha Heddle is kind of scrapes and bows before Tyrion, just like she did before Lord Hoster Tully and his daughters. But she doesn't to Catelyn and Roderick because she doesn't know that they're nobles. Uh, she did, she yes. presumably would. So Sir Roderick's inability to think of Catelyn as anything other than my lady is, is part of that same feudal structure that we were just talking about. Yeah, that's a great point. It's funny, we were, um, my wife and I were, were traveling last night and we were listening to Game of Thrones Catelyn 5 in preparation for this podcast and she laughed at the, uh, the my lady portion of, of the chapter. So it's, it's nice to, it's nice to have that that little bit of, of humor, that little bit of levity in this this chapter, which is, again, it, it's it's a great chapter, but it definitely is foreboding, like you say. That does definitely take us towards a lot of what we're going to be experiencing in the Song of Ice and Fire come the rest of a Game of Thrones and on into a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords. Definitely true. Uh, speaking of elements that are kind of introduced in this chapter and continue to grow and pay off as we go, this is, of course, the chapter, as you said, in your synopsis where we meet Marillion the singer. And... Of all the, like, fantasy RPG archetypes that Martin plays with in this series, I think the Bard character, the Bard stock character, is the one he handles 
the worst or one of the worst anyway. There are exceptions. Yeah. Thomas Sevens is a lot of fun. He gets genuinely witty dialogue. Mance is obviously a fascinating character, one of my favorites. But Marillion, Darian, Simon Silverton, the Blue Bard, uh, they're not my favorites. Their, their dialogue, <laughs> unlike Tom, tends to be pretty stiff. And I think we see that with Marillion here. It's not very naturalistic. Their, their thematic role is to just point out that, hey, the songs are lies, and maybe the singers are liars too, and they're bad, and they're gonna suffer. Is, like, we get that, by the time you get to the Blue Bard, when he's introduced in A Feast for Crows, I'm like, oh, I wonder what's gonna happen to him. <laughs> I wonder if it's gonna be terrible. And that's the other thing, like, their fates tend towards the look how violent I can be, grim dark end of the spectrum, which Martin sometimes gets lumped up, lumped in with. Generally speaking, I think the violence in A Song of Ice and Fire has much more kind of dramatic and thematic import than that, where it's, it makes you feel stuff and it makes you think about things and it's not just there to make you wince and go, oh man, sick. <laughs> so, but Marillion's fate, the Blue Bard's fate, Simon Silvertongue's fate, for me, they, they lean more in the Martin just kind of showing off his violence direction. That's not even really a critique of this chapter. Marillion's whole point in this chapter is to just out Catalan in the dumbest way possible and he does that. It's just something to note going forward. I don't think this is an element Martin handles particularly well. The bard figures in this story do get a lot of violence dealt to them. And yeah, we 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 get it, George. We get that the songs <laughs> and the stories aren't real. Like exactly. we get that. Like we're gonna we're gonna get that through Sansa's chapters a whole lot better than we're going to get through these awful, terrible fates. Like the blue bard. I always remember it's one of the most horrifying passages, I think, in the Song of Ice and Fire when he's being tortured, how the blood filled his his blue boots and oh, stuff yeah. like that. And you're like, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's gross out. And, and Martin usually is not that way with violence in that it's, he doesn't gross you out with the violence. I mean, he shows the reality of violence in a lot of ways. And we see that in, in some of these battles that are, that are coming up in the Game of Thrones. And we also see it too in when the Lannister men killed Jory Cassell and things like that. We, we see violence and we see that it is, is very violent. It is very visceral, but. For these singers, it's it's just a bit much, really. It doesn't serve the thematic purpose any better than Sansa's story does, especially when we're talking about the next chapter, which is Sansa 2, where Sansa's fairy tale conceptions of knights and chivalry are deconstructed on a in in a really, really powerful and great way. Doesn't work as well here with singers for sure. Yeah, that's a great point about Sansa too. Obviously we're gonna get into that at length in our next episode, but I think that's a great example of how Martin can explore that kind of scales falling from your eyes theme much more effectively than I think he does with the singer characters themselves. Absolutely. For me, my likes. So <laughs> like, I, like I said at the beginning of my, my synopsis, this is my favorite chapter in A Game of Thrones. And I think I like everything about this chapter. I guess I kind of have to have a dislike because I just have to have one because this is the not a cast, the negative cast, according to, to Emmett from last <laughs> week. You, you're going to have to indulge me, Emmett. Let me count the ways that I love this chapter. Go ahead, sir. One, I love the raid. I love how it comforts Catelyn, how changing into dry clothes feels great after being in the rain for hours and days, being in the army. That definitely is something that I have experienced changing into dry clothes. It's a fantastic feeling. There's nothing that beats it. Maybe one or two things. But I love how the rain also works to obscure Catelyn's vision, where we talked about, I talked about early on, about how it's symbolizing that Catelyn is in a little fingerian, little fingerian? Yeah, whatever. That works for Fog, me. and it's getting, and, and it's not getting better, too. It's visceral writing, and it's brilliant. Two, I love Catelyn Stark, man. And the character work that George does with her here is brilliant. 
despite all of the wrong people going on about how, how about how Catelyn was acting stupidly and pushing her family into war, she really doesn't. The thought of war terrifies her as much as it really should. Three, I love the many histories of the Riverlands. The Bracken Blackwood conflict is introduced here. The cursed history of Harren Hall, Hoster Tully, the River Lords who bucked Hoster during Robb's Rebellion. I love that stuff, man. It's so it's so good. I, I, it's just fantastic. But then, you know, it's world building too. You also get not just the Riverlands, but also the Vale, the Mountains of the Moon, the North, the Westerlands, the shadow of Casterly Rock hanging over River Run and the Riverlands. That was my fourth one. Five, <laughs> Scope. I love that the hands tourney really is a huge deal. Everyone is heading down to King's Landing to see the tournament or participate in it. It really helps develop our expectation for how grand and how amazing the hands tourney is going to be when we see it in a Game of Thrones Sansa 2 and Game of Thrones Edward 7, our next two chapters. But above all, the kick-ass ending, man. Mm-hmm. Put aside your reread minds for the moment. On first read, didn't this feel like a triumph? A guilty man, that is Tyrion, was getting brought to justice by Catelyn and her merry band. It's such a good moment that David Benioff and Dan Weiss chose this for the ending of their episode from Game of Thrones Season 1, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. And I love how the chapter ends with all the swords being drawn and all the swords pointing at Tyrion Lannister as he's standing in the circle of these swords. It's just a brilliant ending. And you could just see the love that the, the two showrunners have for chapters like this. Later on, it kind of gets a little bit more muddled, but really season one from Game of Thrones is a fantastic, great adaptation of a Game of Thrones. So I, I just love this chapter, man. I just can't stop talking about all the different things that I love in this chapter. And we have so much more to talk about when we get to the foreshadowing and groundwork and our great debate at the end. Well gushed, sir. No, that's all great stuff. I love what you're saying about the ending, especially it's so well paced and the tension is it has you on the edge of your seat, and it's one of those chapters where after you read it for the first time, you let out a huge breath because you realized you were holding it that whole time. Right when those yes. swords were drawn is when you exhale. And it's, again, one of those areas you can see Martin's experience writing for television, his, his tendency to think through these kind of scenes very visually definitely comes through. Uh, it's, it's the kind of scene when you adapt for television, you basically get out of its way and let it be as awesome as it is. And they really did that wonderfully in season one. We were talking a bit before we started recording about just how wonderfully the actors play it. Michelle fairly gives Tyrion this epic side eye when he, yeah. when he laughs at the fray man. Uh, like, again, it's just getting across that moment from the books. That's when she knew she had him. And uh, she she expresses that wonderfully. So, yeah, it's it's such a gripping, urgent, compelling scene that, that even before you know what impact it has, you can already feel how important it is just from how it's written. Yeah. For sure. And it leads us into two fantastic chapters afterwards in, sure in Sansa 2 and, and Eddard 7. For my dislike, so I'm trying. I'm, I'm really <laughs> in. I, I, and and I, this is the dislike. I, I feel like I have to say it because people bring this up all, a lot of times and people have said this to Barton as well. But I really don't feel annoyed by this the way that some people do. But the timeline of Tyrion getting down from the wall in Winterfell and Chance encountering Catelyn in the Riverlands is absurdly fast. Most of the times when I do these, write my synopses and write some of the things that I'm writing for these episodes, I generally don't try to read what other people have written or listen to other podcasts until I've actually gone through it. But this one actually went back and I looked at Stephen Atwell's chapter by chapter review of this chapter, and he actually draws it out really well. Tyrion travels about 2,000 miles from the Wall to the end of the Crossroads, while Catelyn does 400 miles from King's Landing to the end of the Crossroads in a matter of two weeks. It's a bit absurd to meet them when they do, 
But still, I, you know, again, I'm not annoyed by this because I prefer George playing fast and loose with distance and time for the narrative to spin out at an aptly named end. Because I think it's great that all this takes place at the end at the crossroads. And the end at the crossroads is going to be a recurring set piece in a Game of Thrones, in a Clash of Kings, and in on into a, a Storm of Swords and a Feast for Crows. Because so many actions take place here. It's the crossroads for so many characters. And I don't care that in reality, and this is something that Steve put together really well, in reality, Catelyn and Tyrion probably should have met at Moat Kaelin if they were traveling at the same distance and speed. I don't care about that. I really don't. But some people just kind of do. I don't know why. But, you know, George <laughs> one time had said someone had basically did the same thing for Storm of Swords when they're like, oh, how is it that Stannis's fleet traveled so quickly from Dragonstone up to Eastwatch by the sea and got across 200 miles or 150 miles of of territory to attack Mance Raider at the Battle of the Wall. And George is like, put aside your calculator and your ruling stick. Like, just enjoy the story for what it is. And that's what I want to tell folks who get really kind of bent out of shape about this stuff. Just enjoy the story that George is telling and just enjoy the fact that this, the narrative demands that Catelyn and Tyrion intersect at the end of the crossroads. It just makes fucking sense. Okay. That's all I'll say about it. I completely agree, brother. It's, it's perfectly dramatic. You don't think about it when you're reading it. I will say in, in defense of the pedants, the, the only time this becomes a problem for me is, is not fudging with space and time in and of itself. It's when you do it so often and so blatantly that it starts to suck away at the drama and there's a sense that anything can happen and you can break the rules at any time, which is less exciting than when you have a firmly established universe with rules and things happen within those rules. But that's not something Martin is guilty of. Generally speaking, he's pretty scrupulous about these things. So if he yeah. has to stretch it once or twice for the sake of something as dramatically powerful as the end of this chapter, I'm perfectly fine with it. Yeah, I always feel like that, you know, that Asha chapter from A Dance of Dragons where she's counting how many days and miles of the traveling to get from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell, that this is yeah, George like yeah. responding to these criticisms that he's gotten. It's like, OK, so it's 300 miles as the bird flies, 15 days. But no, we're going to be pushed back because the weather is being pushed back. We were. We're on our fifteenth day of our of our of our ten day march and, and stuff like that. And I, I think that's that's George kind of poking people back and be like, okay, you really want me to like do this the way that like people actually traveled and stuff like that? We can do that. And George does a great job of embedding a lot of that bitter sarcasm that Asha has about the journey from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell. But at yes. the same time, like I just I, I don't care. I, I really don't <laughs> care. It's not the most important thing, and it's getting invested in that. As your number one engagement with the text, or your primary engagement with the text, I think, is, is off base for sure. You should be yeah. soaking in the drama of the scene, not not calculating how far exactly they are from, from each other. But, yeah. obviously, as dramatic as this chapter is in the present tense, it also contains some very significant foreshadowing and groundwork. Most of which have to do with the direct ripple effects of this chapter, more than anything else. A lot of it is laid out in that little moment where Catelyn pauses and looks out the window and reflects on her options and what's going on around her, you can see Martin start to build up those areas and what will happen there later on in the book when she's thinking about the option of, of going west, going directly back home to Riverrun. There's the quote, If Winterfell needed to brace for war, how much more so Riverrun? So much closer to King's Landing, with the power of Casterly Rock looming to the west like a shadow. If only her father had been stronger, she might have chanced it. But Hoster Tully had been bedridden these past two years, and Catelyn was loath to tax him now. So not only is that setting up River Run and Hoster Tully is important considerations going forward, but it sets up that the Riverlands are the area in immediate danger of invasion from the West, 
and that Hoster himself, the canny old politician, is not really in shape to defend it anymore, which is set up for exactly what will happen later in the book when uh, Jamie does indeed invade the Riverlands and he's up against not Hoster, but the inexperienced Edmure who promptly folds <laughs> like so many cards. Oh, yeah. And then uh, when he, she goes on to talk about, she turns from the west to the east and starts talking about the Vale. You get the, the great passage when she's talking about the eastern road. It was wilder and more dangerous, climbing through rocky foothills and thick forests into the mountains of the moon, past high passes and deep chasms to the Vale of Erin and the stony fingers beyond. Above the Vale, the Eyrie stood high and impregnable, its towers reaching for the sky. There she would find her sister, and perhaps some of the answers Ned sought. Surely Lysa knew more than she had dared to put it in her letter. She might have the very proof that Ned needed to bring the Lannisters to ruin, <laughs> and if it came to war... They would need the errands and the eastern lords who owed them service. Yet the mountain road was perilous. Shadowcats prowled those passes, rock slides were common, and the mountain clans were lawless brigands, descending from the heights to rob and kill, and melting away like snow whenever the knights rode out from the vale in search of them. Even John Aaron, as great a lord as any of the Erie had ever known, had always traveled in strength when he crossed the mountains. Catelyn's only strength was one elderly knight, armored in loyalty. It's a great passage for a number of reasons, but uh, in terms of the uh, foreshadowing it set up, this is, of course, the road Catelyn will actually take, and that's those are the obstacles she will face when she takes that road. She goes up against the clansmen, as we've said, in battle a couple times in the mountains, barely makes it through, and when she does get there, Lysa does indeed know more than she told in that letter, but she's not going to tell Catelyn about it. The Aarons and the Eastern Lords are going to be held back from taking part in that war, which really arguably dooms Rob as much as any other factor, the fact that the yeah. Vale Lords come out to fight him as a lot of them want to do yeah for sure absolutely and there's a really there's there's a kind of a bitter irony there too in that catelyn finally decides no she thought river run the eerie would have to wait her path ran north to winterfell where her sons and her duty were waiting for her the irony comes because catelyn will never return to winterfell in the story yep at least so far she will never see brandon rickon again Instead, she'll go to the Eerie first, and by the end of A Game of Thrones, she'll be in River Run. So she's never going to go back to Winterfell. She's never going to see some of her children again. She's going to go to the two places that she decides that they would have to wait. Mm. They're not going to have to wait as long, though, as we're going to find <laughs> out, because she's going to the Eerie next and River Run thereafter from the Eerie. Yeah, it's a definitely strong irony coming back to this chapter, knowing where Catelyn's road will take. I think of that moment at the end of the Moat Kaelin chapter when Rob says he's going to have her escort at home, and she starts crying and says, no, I have to go to River Run. My father may be dying. He's surrounded by enemies. I have to go to him. And yeah, that same same sadness coming back to it after the Red Wedding, knowing she's never going to make her way back, even as she keeps thinking she <laughs> is. It's very sad. Yeah. It is that. It is that. But I also think there's kind of an interesting bit of Lord of the Rings type writing here in this chapter. Hmm. Because Casterly Rock is described as looming like a shadow over River Run. Kind of reminds me of how the shadow of Mordor looms over Gondor and over Minas Tirith. Oh, yeah. While the perilous mountain road gives me vibes of Karatis, the mountain that the Fellowship attempts to cross in Fellowship of the Ring. And they're prevented and they have to take another road to kind of get the ring of closer to Mordor. So I think George is taking a bit of a leaf out of J.R.R. Tolkien. And he does it really well, I think. It really kind of builds up the reputation of Casterly Rock and not not by name, but by implication of the reputation of Lord Tywin Lannister and what he might be doing come later in this book. Yeah, that's an interesting note about Tolkien. Obviously, 
Tolkien wrote in a variety of settings in Middle-earth, you know, cities, market towns, in the midst of armies, but we what we associate with him most strongly is the nature settings and, and characters traveling yes. through nature. And that's not something we've seen much of in A Song of Ice and Fire yet, up to this point. We had the prologue set in the woods, we had Danny on the Dothraki Sea, but for the most part it's been set in castles and cities, or on the well-traveled King's Road, or at, uh, mm-hmm. at the Wall, which still a castle. <laughs> when, once we get to the Mountains of the Moon in Tyrion 4, that's really the first time Martin starts playing with the more Tolkien-esque nature settings that we, he will develop much further, like when we get to Bran on the road in A Storm of Swords, which are some yes. chapters I think are very, very strongly influenced by Tolkien's writing. But I definitely think you can see a hint of that earlier, like in the Mountains of the Moon or in the Frost Fangs when Jon is with Corrin Halfhand. That's, that's some Tolkien-esque stuff right there, for sure. Absolutely. Great point. A little more foreshadowing is something we've already touched on, is Catelyn getting into the Riverlands and the political actors therein. Some fairly significant figures. She talks about them. Catelyn knew them all, the Blackwoods and the Brackens, ever enemies, whose quarrels was fought, her father was obliged to settle. Which will come up later in the story when Jaime has to <laughs> settle the latest uh, bout of uh, Blackwood-Bracken fighting. Catelyn says, Lady Went, last of her line, who dealt with her, dwelt with her ghosts in the cavernous vaults of Harrenhal. Harrenhal, of course, is going to be a very significant location as the War of Five Kings unfolds. Multiple occupants, multiple lords, all suffering the various grisly fates that are associated with the castle. And even here from the first mention, who dwelt with her ghosts, sets up Harrenhal as this kind of sorrowful, haunted, nightmarish kind of place. And then there's then there's the irascible Lord Frey, who outlived seven wives and filled his twin castles with children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and bastards and grand-bastards as well. So this is the first mention of House Frey, who will, of course, be some of the most re- reoccurring and significant antagonists in the series. Again, I already get the sense that it's just too many people crammed onto a couple tiny <laughs> islands, and at some point uh, the knives are going to have to start to come out. Oh, yeah. We don't know all of this at this point, but the very fact that Catelyn is bringing up the reputation of late Lord Frey as, as being having questionable loyalties to Hoster Tully already sets up the phrase as, as treacherous folks, not to be trusted. Yes, absolutely. And this is actually of, of interest for folks who are interested in how the story was written and that there was no Lord Frey and there was no Lord Bolton when George wrote his pitch letter back in 1993, when he was about halfway through well, when he was a little bit all the way through writing a Game of Thrones, in that the phrase and the Boltons were not in evidence there. As we know, Rob Stark was originally intended to die in battle fighting against Joffrey and Jaime at some point. But here we see a later addition to a Game of Thrones with the introduction of the phrase and the fact that Rob Stark is going to need a bridge to cross, and that being a very pivotal moment. That sets up Rob's downfall more than any other factor to include. And I think it's a great factor, too, that the Aarons don't join into the war and the Vale of Aaron does not participate at all. But the fact that the Fraser are there and the Fraser are introduced here and as the Fraser are introduced as potentially treacherous sets the foundation for Rob Stark's and Catelyn's ultimate downfall. Yeah, that's a terrific point about the phrase there that it seems like a lot of secondary antagonists were added after the pitch letter, and specifically when he yes. changed Rob's fate, as you mentioned, when he went from dying in battle to the Red Wedding. And the Red Wedding, one of the pleasures of it as a narrative event is how intricate the setup is, how many different factions there are, how they all kind of lead to this this one crisis point. But uh, Martin, of course, had to add all those factors and actors in. So that's where you get the phrase, the Boltons, and even the Greyjoys don't come up in the pitch letter. Yes. Uh, Correct. The Greyjoys, of course, are involved in multiple parts of the plot, but their first real significant contribution to the story is invading the North and screwing up Rob's plans in that way. 
So you can okay. see Martin thinking about, okay, I have this new fate for Rob Stark. How how am I going to reach that point? What new characters do I need to get us there? And the Freys are definitely on that list. Yes, absolutely. But you also get some secondary houses that are introduced here as well, ones that were not loyal to Hostertelli during Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, that's an interesting touch. We've come upon a couple times uh, already so far in the text that Ned mentioned that the Darius had fought for Rhaegar and that this led to tensions while they stayed at House Derry while searching for Arya back in that dust-up at the Riverlands. And it comes up a couple times later in the series, too. We talk about the, the tapestries, the Targaryen tapestries of House Derry, the good brooks who stayed loyal to House Targaryen during the war, so House Tertulli came down on them with uh, fire and swords. It makes me wonder if there's some payoff Martin has in mind for this, these latent Targaryen loyalties in the Riverlands. Maybe these houses join Danny. Maybe these houses join Young Griff when he shows up, given the, the Blackfire history in the Riverlands. Especially Jonas Bracken, I could see doing that. Mercenary character that he is. Uh, maybe they join <laughs> Young Griff and then Danny. This, this is one narrative throw that Martin seems to be bringing up with some frequency, so... I'm curious to see if there's a payoff for it. Yeah, I mean, these houses, though, I don't recall what happens to the Rhaegars, but the Moontons are extinct by this point, right? Right, that's a good point. I think, yeah, and the, and the Darius, uh have... The Darius go some, extinct during the War of the Five Kings. The, the Darius are surviving nominally through the female line and the phrase kind of taking over. So no, yeah. that's definitely a good point. Maybe it'll come into play with the small folk. Obviously, these sparrows are drawing their levies most heavily from the Riverlands, and I think we agree they're likely to team up with Team Griff at some points, so maybe it'll come into play that way. There might be a narrative payoff in those tapestries being at Castle Derry mm-hmm. and that whole callback to Danny's first chapter where Viserys mentions the Derrys by name and True. Illyrio alludes to people sewing secret Targaryen banners and tapestries back in Westeros and Danny not being sure if that's true or not. Well, it was true for the Darius, as we talked about in our analysis of Daenerys 1, but a lot of these houses go extinct during the War of the Five Kings, and those that don't go extinct in the Riverlands are, a lot of them are on the ropes. I mean, we talked about the Malisters early on, but I think, was it Jason, or Patrick is, is a, was a prisoner of the phrase, and they wheeled him up to Seaguard and, and threatened to hang him until Jason Malister surrendered Seaguard to the phrase. So a lot of these houses are on the ropes, so... The Riverlands get fucked in the War of the Five Kings, and I don't know if they're going to play that big of a role in terms of the noble houses fighting for or against Daenerys Targaryen, but I definitely think the small folk will have a part to play, and I think the Brother of Banners being allied or being incorporated into the worship of Relore will have an impact on Daenerys Targaryen, since she potentially has the ability to bring a number of Relorite followers on over into Westeros, so they seem natural allies to the Brother of Banners and the uh, and the Targaryens. But I like uh, the idea of the Brackens just nominally aligning with Young Griff. I think it would be a nice little touch that Martin might want to incorporate to indicate that Aegon is a Blackfire. If you have the Brackens, who were the uh, the house that uh, that spawned in part along with Aegon the Fourth, the spawned Bittersteel, and that is Aegor Rivers. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to see how that all progresses when we get into the Winds of Winter for sure. Excellent points all across the board. I totally agree that the Riverlands are seem like they're pretty much done being a major player on the larger scale in Westeros. The drama there is mostly internal, I think, in terms of Stoneheart's uprising coming in the Winds of Winter. 
But yeah, I do love the idea of Jonas Bracken like immediately rushing to bend the knee to young Griff in exchange for being the new Lord Paramount of the Riverlands, <laughs> and specifically getting to screw over the Blackwoods. I could I could very much see him making that deal. That might be the extent Absolutely. of the payoff here, but that, that would work. And like you say, it would tie into the hints that young Griff is a Blackfire. If you have the Riverlands house most associated with the Blackfire rebellions rushing to bend the knee to him. That would be cool. The final bit of foreshadowing in this chapter is a nice little touch that several people have pointed out before, but the foreshadowing of Tyrion's successful appeal to Bronn when they get to the Eyrie, and Bronn agrees to take Tyrion's side in the trial by combat that eventually saves Tyrion's life in exchange for gold to come. Uh, there's the quote in this chapter when Tyrion shows up at the inn to find that there's no rooms available. Quote, Tyrion Lannister pulled a coin from his purse and flicked it up over his head, caught it, tossed it again. Even across the room where Catelyn sat, the wink of gold was unmistakable. <laughs> a free rider in a faded blue cloak lurched to his feet. You're welcome to my room, my lord. Now there's a clever man, Lannister said as he spent, sent the coin spinning across the room. So that's setting up that Tyrion has this ace in the hole of Lannister wealth, which he will use with both Mord and Bronn when he gets to the Eyrie as kind of his, his, his last resort. The last thing he can use to get someone on his side when his back is up against the wall. And it even kind yes. of foreshadows how Bronn will continue to earn that gold, because that quote ends with, The free rider snatched it, the coin, from the air, and a nimble one to boot, Tyrion says. So that's, Bronn will, of course, continue to earn Tyrion's coin by being so nimble and quick with his sword, being able to uh, be faster than an outfox Vardis Egan and other foes. So that's that's yes. a nice little touch by Martin setting up that scene. It really is. It's, it's cool how Martin does... A lot of great Tyrion work in mm -hmm. this scene and in this chapter. And, you know, it's something that Tyrion does across his arc, even extending to the end of A Dance of Dragons, where he's purchasing the second sons. Good point. One yeah. by one with their officers, <laughs> with the promise of coins. And he doesn't even have to use coins. He just promises them, writes a promissory note saying, and this, this guy will get the X amount of silver and the officers of the second sons will get 50 golden dragons and Brown Ben Plum will get a thousand golden dragons and... It's great. I think it's terrific because it it really does. Uh, what, what is that line from uh, Cash Money Rules Everything Around Me? Is that what it is? Cash Rules Everything Around Me. Yeah, it's it's definitely yeah. definitely a Wu Tang approach to life that Tyrion's got going there. Yeah, and it's something he's going to utilize to his advantage and benefit throughout the series. And we'll see if there's going to be any payoff eventually, or if there's going to be a downfall. Whether he tries to bribe the wrong person down the road and. Maybe loses something like a tongue potentially, or or something else, as some folks have theorized. But yeah, for sure, I'm I'm looking forward to when we getting to uh, that Varus Egan fight because that's definitely one of those ones that kind of gets lost in the shuffle and a lot of true uh, single combats. People like kind of not. I mean, the Oberyn versus the Mountain. That's the one people fantastic. gravitate toward, I think. Yeah, but the one with Varus Egan and Bronn is also terrific, and how Bronn is dancing around him the entire time and exhausting this guy who's wearing plate armor and. Yeah, it's terrific. It's good stuff. I loved what you said yeah, about Brown Ben and the Second Sons. Tyrion has that great line. He's buying steel swords with parchment dragons. That's just what he says. Yeah. Because as he says, you know, if he lives long enough to get back to Casterly Rock, then sure, they can have the gold. Why not? And if he doesn't, then he doesn't have to pay him. So it, it works out perfectly for him at that point. And it's interesting to contrast what he does here with Catelyn because Catelyn's trying to hide. Catelyn is, is pretending to just be a common traveler. But Tyrion has to impress upon everyone that he's a Lannister. He has to use his gold, his image, his name, because otherwise yeah. he's, he's just a dwarf, and that makes him very vulnerable uh, wandering around Westeros. Yes. Whereas Catelyn, of course, there's vulnerabilities being a woman wandering around Westeros too, 
but she has a Sir Roderick at her side, and so she can... There are not really many drawbacks to Catelyn pretending to just be a peasant. She get Maybe Masha Heddle is more mean to her, but that's the worst she has to face. Uh, for Tyrion, mm-hmm. as he points out, if he'd been born a peasant, he'd been, he would have been left outside to die. So he has to take advantage of the wealth and the name and the image, or he's screwed. Pretty much. Pretty much. And that is his one recourse. Yep. He has his wits, and he's got his father's gold. So that's good on him, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you take, spend, it I while guess. You, spend it while you got it, Tyrion. Dad's not going to be yep. filling your wallet for long. Not long indeed. So that is all of our foreshadowing for this episode. And now we get to talk about how Catelyn was absolutely 100% correct and right to imprison Tyrion and take him onto the Eyrie, right? 100% correct. Zero, zero nuance or ambiguity here. Haters to the door. It's a conversation that's easily inflamed and it's easy to get off topic and, and get into <laughs> what degree of awful Catelyn is. I think it's important to talk about the context to this decision because as we've been talking about, Martin is paying a lot of attention to how he sets this scene up because he knows how important it is. So I think it behooves us to consider as much as we can about Catelyn's mindset and trying to remove from our head things we know as both as readers for the first time and as rereaders that she has no way of knowing. I think it's important to keep those things in mind. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in that. And this goes for a lot of things that we're going to be talking about as we're going forward. As, as rereaders, we have a good sense of where the story is going or we should, but you have to kind of look at these decisions, not in a vacuum, because I think that's also something that can be wrong, but you also have to look at them without the presentism idea that's kind of embedded in a lot of this thinking that, oh, well, Catelyn does this and this leads to, inevitably leads to war. You know, it, it's, you have to kind of evaluate the decision based on the factors that Catelyn has here, because Catelyn seemingly doesn't have many good options here, right? What are, what are, what are Catelyn's options? Well, I mean, it needs to be emphasized that Catelyn's plan A is to hide. Like that's right. If she just leapt to her feet the minute Tyrion walked in and pointed her finger at him, I think we would feel a lot differently about this scene and her character in general. But Martin emphasizes a couple times that that's not her goal. When Tyrion walks in and Sir Roderick goes, oh, gods, Catelyn grabs his arm and there's that, like, her nails are digging in. She wants to keep him quiet. And then right before Marillion speaks up, like the idiot he is, she thinks to herself, oh, he's, she's, I'm, I'm in the back of the room. Tyrion's not going to look over here. Whew. Her, her hope is for them to just be ships passing in the night, that neither of them bother with each other and they can just both carry on. That's what she wants to have happen. Once he sees her, then I think her options change and they all become bad. Like if Tyrion presses onto the capital and tells his siblings that, hey, he saw Lady Stark coming north from King's Landing in disguise, they're going to know that Ned is conspiring. This is right after it's right. been emphasized in Eddard Four when Ned and Catelyn met for the last time that they got to keep things secret. They got to pretend everything's on the up and up. Got to keep the keep the betrothal between um, uh, Sansa and Joffrey and just pretend everything's fine because if they don't have the authority or the information yet to really deal with the Lannisters, so if the Lannisters find out before they're ready that they're conspiring against them, that might screw everything up permanently for the Starks and the Tullys. So. In that moment, Catelyn thinks to herself, ah, oh, this might be my least bad option, because if I just let him go, that's that's going to leave Ned at a serious disadvantage. Right. And you also have to like factor in, too, that we as rereaders, we know the, the outcome. We know that Tyrion had nothing to do with the death of Bran Stark, or the attempted <laughs> murder of Bran Stark. God, I'm just fucking up this whole podcast this, this week. Hush you. Yeah, right. But, you know, that, that's the thing, right, is, is that Catelyn doesn't have any way of knowing that. 
Catelyn is trusting the word of a close friend that does she doesn't realize that Littlefinger is playing her. And while Ned Stark is a bit more skeptical of Littlefinger, Catelyn has this whole backstory and this whole understanding of who Littlefinger is and doesn't have any reason to believe that Littlefinger would want to betray her or deceive her in some way. And I think that's important to consider here as well, is that there is an emotionality in Catelyn Stark's reaction to Tyrion and that she explicitly cites Bran as the reason why Tyrion needs to be arrested. But this is potentially for her the only way that she can bring the alleged attempted murder of Bran Stark to justice, because if she lets him go, while there's also the possibility that she that Tyrion will go on to tell Jamie and Cersei what's going on and that Catelyn is roaming around the Riverlands, that the Starks had deceived him and had not told him where she was when he was up in Winterfell, that he would tell them. But there's also the factor, too, that Catelyn is letting a potential murder go. And I think that also has to factor, too, when we're considering Catelyn's decision here. Very true. We don't we don't we're not really sure of Tyrion's innocence as readers the first time through. We are as rereaders, of course. But uh, Catelyn's doesn't have access to the same information. And she also thinks she has a lot more authority at her back than she turns out to. Like, it's not just Littlefinger she's trusting here. It's also Lysa, who cited Cersei right. from what we know in the letters she sent, but more generally blamed the Lannisters. And as we see, Catelyn's plan is ends up being to take Tyrion to Lysa and gather more information. So she's hoping Lysa will back this up and offer some kind of post hoc legitimacy to it. Problem is, Catelyn does not know that Lysa is lying. Catelyn does not know that about Lysa's mental and emotional state of late, that she's really not reliable in any sense. And uh, she doesn't also know that the power of the veil has kind of devolved into a 35,000 strong bodyguard unit for one frightened <laughs> child. Which, as we've said, is turned out to be very significant so for true. the war going forward. But as, as Catelyn says in this chapter, she, they're counting on the errands and their lords if it should come to war with the Lannisters. And Catelyn thinks she can. She She's making the reasonable assumption that because Lysa is the one who reached out in the first place, that Lysa is going to be willing to continue helping her with this cause. Lysa says, how dare you show up with your problems on my doorstep? And Catelyn's like, my problems? You were the one who sent the letter. This is this is your fight. I'm just joining it. That's what that's what Catelyn thinks is going on here. And she's, she's turned out to be wrong about that, but there's no way she could have known right now. Yeah, you have to you have to keep that context in mind when when you're reading this. But you know the the bigger side, the other side of it too, is that beyond Lysa, beyond Littlefinger, beyond this chance encounter at the end of the crossroads, war is inevitable at this point. We know from a few chapters on that Tywin Lannister is already gathering swords at Casterly Rock and preparing for war, and this is happening before Tyrion meets Catelyn because we know that t- that. Tywin Lannister has sellswords from Essos. He has a Tyroshi sellsword band, for instance, in his employ. Then that's a bit odd that you would have sellswords just at Casterly Rock months before the war was planned or before before the war happened. It would take months for these folks to get from Essos to Westeros. So war is inevitable here and everyone is getting ready for war. Yeah, it's interesting to note that we're not really ever given details on how much Tywin knows about what Cersei is up to. Specifically, we don't, we never really get confirmation as to whether Tywin knows that Cersei is partially responsible for Robert's death, and whether Tywin was aware of that going on. Pycelle is his mole, so it's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah, the game is already on at this point. As we've said a couple times, the Starks are latecomers to this. Other factions have been 
getting ready to go for quite some time, and they're ready to go as soon as Robert is dead. Stannis is getting ready for war. Renly is getting ready for war. Varys and Illyrio are getting ready. They say, uh, what good is war now in Arya's next chapter when she's overhearing them? But that's basically a promise for war later. So even if right. Catelyn and Tyrion just do pass like ships in the night, the conflict is still inevitable at this point. Hell, if if Catelyn never snatches Tyrion and Jaime never attacks Ned on in, in King's Landing, Ned will conclude his investigation even sooner than he does and find out the truth and everything would explode from there. Or Renly would make an accusation or Stannis would make an accusation and it would snowball into the conflict. That's not saying Catelyn has no agency or shouldn't be held responsible for her decisions, but this just happened to be the tipping point. It's not as if... Oh, that Catelyn Stark, if she hadn't done anything, there wouldn't have been a war. If, if this hadn't occurred, the tipping point would come soon eventually anyway. Yeah. From our Daily Three episode, one of our sworn swords, Sir Joseph S., said, and I think he, he put it really, really well. He said, Ned is coming in at the 11th hour of three or four major long-term plots that are all reaching their conclusions. Yes. Renly with the Tyrells, Vars and Illyrio, Littlefinger, and Cersei's plot to kill the king. So... I think that is important context to keep in mind that everyone is getting ready for war. Stannis is gathering the fleet of Dragonstone. Tywin is hiring sellswords. Renly is getting the is getting into an alliance with the Tyrells in order to bring them on the side of Robert. Initially, it seems, but when Robert dies, Renly then has the Tyrells at his disposal to marry into their family and bring eighty thousand swords, potentially a hundred thousand swords, into war against the Lannisters as well. So. Everyone's getting ready for war, and I think it's a great point you make that this is a tipping point as opposed to being the catalyst for the war. Right, Everyone's exactly. going to be going to war in a few months anyways. The, the factor that's at play here is when the war actually starts. And I think this is probably as good as, as, good of a declaration of war as any as we, as we see in the series. Yeah, I think, again, it's rooted in the feudal relationships – which are predicated upon war in large part, that you're giving your overlord kind of a monopoly on violence, that you're agreeing to come when he calls his banners. That's what Catelyn is relying upon here, and it's in, in that position that the war starts. And like I said, she thinks she has a considerable amount of resources at her back that will make this okay, that will make this the start of a victory for her side. She thinks she's taken the preemptive leap to give them an advantage. She thinks she's going to have Lysa and the Aarons and the Eastern Lords who owe them service. She, her husband is Hand of the King, and she has no idea that in the worst timing ever, Ned will give up that position right after this happens, throw his his pin at Robert's face and tell him to shove it up his royal ass, and thus make himself uniquely vulnerable to Jamie's attack on the road. I mean, Jamie says specifically when he rides up to Ned in the streets of King's Landing that, yeah, he was the Hand. What he is now, I'm not sure. And Cersei brings up that point, too. You're not the Hand anymore. You can't claim any authority or legitimacy. So if... If Ned had held on to his position, he might have he might have been in the position to get Robert on his side instead of Robert just declaring it a wash as he as he will do. He might have right. been able to capitalize and take advantage of this. So Catelyn has no idea that that shortcoming is is occurring. So while she does make assumptions about the resources she has available to her, and those assumptions turn out to be wrong, they are not unfounded assumptions. I think. She's like a lot of like like the Starks in general. She's victim of some truly terrible luck. It's terrible luck. But the question is, and this is going to be a recurring question in the fandom. It seems like this debate is never going to end. Sure. Is whether the blame for the war can lie at Catelyn's feet. I'm I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not entirely. I I, I feel like that the the lion shared the blame lies at Cersei and Jamie's feet. The lion's Pun share, so to speak. But I'm tish. Yeah, there you go. Bing! Pun. Um, <laughs> but 
I guess. And being like, I guess the one, the only Catelyn defender in the entire realm of fandom, right? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's correct. I think that's true. Yeah. That Catelyn maybe bears a small part of the blame for when the war actually starts more than anything else. I guess. As, as I've said, I think there's a fair amount of presentism in terms of how Catelyn's decisions are presented here in the, in the, in the fandom. That she doesn't know that Ned's going to give up his handship. She doesn't know about Lysa's situation. She doesn't know that Jamie's going to attack Ned in the streets. But I, th- I think it is predictable she could have seen coming that Tywin's response to her doing this would be to raise a bunch of swords and go for River Run. I think that is predictable knowing Tywin Lannister as a person. Tyrion predicts yeah. it. Uh, ably enough and Catelyn knows as she says in this chapter that Hoster is in poor health that this will tax him further it must not come to war and that is that is a risk she took on when she snatched up Tyrion I think her motivations are understandable I think her reasoning is fairly sound in the moment I think the emotional parts of what's going on are very relatable and I think like I said I think she's victim of some really bad luck but I think she still bears some responsibility, as you say, for the way the war started, with the invasion of the Riverlands, which, as we were talking about in this chapter, is her home. It's the place she loves, and she does bear responsibility for putting it at risk. Yeah, I, I think I have to agree with that, that, that she bears responsibility for the way the war starts, and especially the timing of the war itself. Yeah. At the same time, though, as, as rereaders, it's important to remember that George R. R. Martin is very much thumbing the scale towards war oh, in yeah. the series. He bends space and time, to use Steve Atwell's terminology, to bring Tyrion and Catelyn together at the end of the crossroads in order to push the nation of Westeros into war, because that is the outcome, and that is what is going to be emanating from this decision. And I, I don't disagree with Catelyn's decision whatsoever. I think she made the right call given the bad circumstances, and I feel like it was the best of all the bad options she had out there for herself. But in the end, it does start the war. Now, if people have said, well, she should have just let Tyrion go, and Tyrion would have maybe not told Cersei because Tyrion doesn't have a good relationship with Cersei. But again, you have to keep in mind that Catelyn doesn't necessarily know that Tyrion and Cersei's relationship is bad. We would probably, I think it's probably given that Tyrion would talk with Jamie because he considers Jamie to be someone that he admires and he loves. And that would then, Jamie would then talk with Cersei and then you have the outcome still occurring. And you'd have the Lannisters having an advantage at that point in being able to get the war started in such a way that may not be for the, that was that would be at a disadvantage for the Riverlands and for the North. So I think it was the right call. But in the end, she does bear responsibility for when the war starts starting probably a few months before the 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 major players intended for start for it to start. Yeah, I think it's more interesting to have a defensible decision that has indefensible consequences than it for it to just be Catelyn is stupid and screwed up completely cuz she sucks and that let, got everyone killed. Like I get I suppose that's cathartically satisfying if you go in with the mindset that Catelyn's the worst, but I think if you read the scene more with the modicum of, of sympathy and putting yourself in the situation, I think it develops into something much more interesting where yeah. you can see yourself making that call, even as you know, especially as a rereader, what the consequences are going to be like. Yes, indeed. And as always, the debate will go, will carry on forever and ever. But I think you can, I hope that you all have enjoyed our little discussion of it. And I think hopefully 
and this is not to sound arrogant, but I hope it a lot of I feel like a lot of times in the fandom, these discussions don't necessarily turn out for the best necessarily. I think at, at some point you have to like take a step back from your love of a character. And I, and I love Catelyn as a character. She's one of my favorite point of view characters and I find her tragic turn and I find her turn to Stoneheart so very tragic and, and heartbreaking because I love her as a character. Same but here. you have to take a step back. From, yeah, exactly. But you have to take a step back from your love of a character. I have to take a step back from my love of Jamie, for instance, and evaluate him as a person, whether he was doing morally good things or making the right calls at various points. And the same thing should apply here with Catelyn, too. And for any of the decisions, any of the decisions as we're going to be talking about Ned's decisions coming up later on, as much as I love Ned... You have to lend him a fair amount of criticism for some of the work that he does as Hand of the King. And at the same time, you do have to lend Catelyn some criticism for some of the decisions that she makes here. And in this case, the decision she makes leads to war a lot sooner than it was planned by all of the players involved. Yeah, much as we both love Stannis, I just did a thread on Twitter today about one of his most obnoxious moments when he's talking about John to Rob on the wall uh, and just completely mischaracterizes Rob and his whole campaign. So yeah, it does it does us no favors to skip over the flaws in these characters' thinking and worldview, and but we got to do our best to contextualize them and see how <laughs> see how their flaws are interrelated with and kind of inextricable from their virtues. I think what makes Stannis great, what makes Stannis bad, you can't pull it apart. What makes Jamie great, what makes Jamie bad, you can't pull it apart. And same with Catelyn. It's it's all part of the same thing, and that's good writing. That's good characterization. It's all about. Half rotted onions and half good onions. And the human heart in conflict with itself. Yes, absolutely. There you go. There you go. And that is the podcast. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> and that pretty much wraps it up, I think, sir, for, for Catelyn 5, A Game of Thrones. And I hope that everyone has enjoyed our episode and analysis of A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 5. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to us. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Acast, Podbean, all of the great places that you listen to your pod to listen to your podcast. We do read all the comments and all the reviews, and we thank everyone who is making great reviews, comments, and enjoying our podcast over these. I think we're up to about six months now in total, right? Yeah, we've we've been at it quite a while, sir, since near the beginning of the year. We've, we're so old. <laughs> we are that. So obviously, as always, you can find us at Notacast A S O I A F on Twitter, or shoot us a line at Notacast A S O I A F at gmail.com can find our Patreon if you haven't already checked it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF. Our next patron-only episode on Robert Baratheon will be out on August 30th. Uh, more personally speaking, you can find me at Port Quentin or at portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit. And my website is wars and politics, vice and fire.wordpress.com. So, Join us next time as we finally get to the hands turning that hated hands turning according to Ned Stark, but Sansa is going to find it more beautiful than the songs until she encounters two characters at the end of her chapter. And am I reading this correct? This is your favorite chapter in the Game of Thrones? Damn straight. Just as this one was yours, sir, we're going to follow it up with mine. I love Sansa 2 very dearly. It's one of my favorite chapters in the series, and it's, yeah, my number one chapter in this book. So it's going to be a great time. And we're also very excited to announce we will be having a guest for that episode on Sansa 2. You may know her as uh, Liza Arbor from Twitter and Tumblr. Uh, you may know her from her stuff she's written about Ashara Dane, her excellent podcast Girls Gone Canon, the work she's done with a Drunk a Song of Ice and Fire History, or her showing up and doing great work at Ice and Fire Con and other great fandom cons. It's Chloe Ketchum. 
and she's a huge Sansa yeah. fan, so we're super delighted to have her on for that episode. It's going to be so cool to have her on. I can't wait to do it with her. So thanks, everyone, for listening to us, and we will see you guys next week. Take care, everybody. <laughs>